49, Genesis 49. How many glad to be in church tonight? Amen. How many feel like you're awake? Oh, uh, two-thirds of you are not awake. We're going to be here a long time tonight. Amen? Lock the doors. Amen? <laughs> Genesis 49, verse 19. I'm so glad you're here tonight. Thank God for you. Church is wonderful. Amen? Amen. It's great to be in the house of God to sing, hear reports, hear about people getting saved, praying for souls to be saved. A lot of you have family members that need to get saved. We need to be burdened about that. Genesis 49, I want you to go to verse 19. I want us to read together. Now, what's my line? I want you to read so loud that you are to your neighbor next to you, okay? You're already annoying, but be more annoying, okay? Genesis 49, verse 19. Let's read together. Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome out of the last. Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. Look at verse 21 again. That's our text tonight. I'm skipping Asher. I'm going to save him to after Easter. His name means happy. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. I'm going to preach a message entitled Naphtali. A man of good report. It's amazing how these sons of Jacob nestled in their names and in their descendants. Incredible character lessons for you and I to grasp. If you'll just take one of the lessons we'll see tonight and let God work in your heart, it will change your life. And by the way, how many believe tonight we are in church for God to change our life? Amen. Amen. I don't want to be the same. I want to, keep, I want to keep going higher and higher and higher for Jesus. Amen? Amen? That should be our desire. Now, we don't sing that song so much because with marijuana dispensaries now, I don't want to get somebody excited. I'm, getting, I'm going higher and higher and higher. That just doesn't have a good connotation then. Amen? But we do realize tonight it's important to grow in the faith. If you're content just being the same place, my, my, my desire tonight is I want to comfort the afflicted, but I'm going to afflict the comfortable. Amen? I need to afflict the comfort. I want you to get disturbed about being contented with just being at the same place. I want you to grow in the Lord and just have a fire in your soul. Listen, my heart's desire is for all of us to have a heart for souls. A pastor spent a lot of money this past, just two days ago, just not very far from here, and drew about 20 pastors, churches, churches from all over Northern California to get them stirred about soul winning. Boy, we've got to get stirred about soul winning because we're losing the battle out there, folks. We're losing the battle out there. You better go up to assembly and see, see what's going on up there in terms of the bills that are being introduced. It's, it's crazy. If you know what's going on in California, it is absolutely crazy what's going on out there. And this is not a game. We're losing ground. To, even as we're, we're meeting here and I'm preaching to you tonight to feed your soul, we are losing ground to the devil. We need to get busy. I mean, there's, there's over 200 people in here tonight. We need to get busy for God. We do all we can for Jesus. Father, tonight, thank you for the, the, the man named Naphtali. And there's so little said about him, but what, what little is said is good. And so tonight, thank you for loving us. Lord, would you love your people through me? Feed your flock this evening. Help them to know that they have a chief shepherd and bishop of their soul, and his name is Jesus Christ. Help them to recognize tonight that the Lord is our shepherd. And when David said, I shall not want, he didn't want anything but Jesus as shepherd. God, help us to love you. Help us, Lord, just to do all we can for you. And I pray you'd lift burdens tonight. There are some, Lord, this evening who, whose hearts are heavy. They're discouraged. They're going through some valleys. And I pray that, Lord, their, their valleys would be made high. And for some of us, our high places need to be made low. And I pray tonight that we discover how great you are through the character study of Naphtali. Open thou our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Order our steps in your word. And let not any iniquity have dominion over us. Father, help us have the spirit of a Caleb. We would just say, I want that mountain. Lord, that, that, that spirit that says that, Lord, I've served you. He said he served you for 45 years. His strength was not weakened. His eyes were not dim. He wanted to do more for Christ. 
And God, thank you, he's such a loyal spirit that he had to Josh and to the work of God. The Bible says he had a right spirit, and I pray you help us have a right spirit tonight. As we study Naphtali, please help us this evening to have a teachable heart. We'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of our founding members of Heritage Baptist Church, I'm going to take you back in history for just a minute. One of our founding members of Heritage Baptist Church was a lady named Mrs. Emily Wong. How many remember Mrs. Wong? Mrs. Emily Wong was one of the great Christians, probably one of the greatest Christians I knew. I had privilege to have her as my soul winning partner for many, many years. She's much, much, much older than me at that time. And she would just, I, I can't tell you how many Chinese-speaking people she went to Christ during the years I knew her. She was with me at bedsides of people dying. She'd translate wonderful Christian, consistent lady. And I'll tell you something, I'll tell you something. Even at 82 and 83, as she started to, she, dementia was setting in. She loved preaching. She loved to be in church. And she'd get mad at me if her ride didn't pick her up. Some people would say, well, that's okay, they didn't pick me up. They'd go turn on Netflix or something like that, whatever they do nowadays. Not Mrs. Wong, she'd call me up. And she'd say with her little her voice, I can still hear her voice, Brother Fong. Or no, she'd do this, Alan. Oh, so boy, that sounds like my mom now. <laughs> Where's my ride? But i tell you something about Mrs. Wong. She's one of those ladies, my, I don't know how to describe it, but she's one of those ladies you could just, you could talk about the things of God, and she enjoyed it. And now I'm saying something to you, you ought to enjoy talking about the things of God, amen? Yes, sir. Yeah, you ought to enjoy that. And, uh, and we'd have conversations about preachers, maybe prospective preacher coming to preach at our church because he didn't know the names, and, uh, or about missionaries. You know what she always asked me? I mean, I, I, I knew Mrs. Wong since the 70s. I knew her story, how her husband left her. She had to raise two small children. She had to make her, I mean, just, you, you think you have a tough life. You, if, if we could ever find a recording of Mrs. Wong's testimony, it, you'll have tears coming down your eyes to hear her testimony. But she would always ask this question. She would say this, Alan or Brother Fong, does that man have a good report? Does he have a good report? She would always ask that question, is he a man of good report? She was not impressed by size of churches. She was not swayed by statistics. She didn't even care if his name wound up in the sword of the Lord. All she was concerned about was the biblical, the biblical qualification, does he have a good report. Tonight, I want you to see a man who has a good report. I want to encourage every man in this room, regardless of where your life is at tonight, and every woman in this room, to be a man and a woman of good report. Notice in our passage tonight, this man by the name of Nephtali. He was the sixth son of Jacob. He was the second by Bilhah. His brother was Dan, who we read about in verses 16, 17, and 18. He was the younger brother of Dan. And uh, this man, as we look at him, you look at verse 20, 21, and uh, there's some powerful things, if we take some time to study this, that are said about him. And I want you to see four things about this man tonight. Four things as I prepared over a year ago in studying about this, and I got a little bit more into this earlier this week, that just really drove me to my knees. It spoke to my heart in volumes about a man of a good report. I want you to notice, number one, I want you to see Naphtali and his wrestling. Naphtali and his wrestling. That's what his name means. Wrestling. In Genesis 30, would you turn there? Genesis 30, verses 7 and 8. It says, And Bilhah, Rachel's maid, conceived again, and bare Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, With great wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. She called his name Naphtali. Now God is kind of setting, setting a, a prelude here to something that would happen two chapters later. Look at verse 30, uh, excuse me here, verse uh, 8 again. With great wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister. Wrestling in this context is speaking of a contention, a contentiousness. Leah and Rachel were contentious. They were both 
vying for the affection of Jacob. What a sad thing, lady, man, if your wife has to vie or fight or compete for your affection. Just a thought for you there. And this woman, Rachel, said, with great wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister. And she said, I prevail. And she called his name Naphtali. What she said there was not said in secret. What she said there was said in the open. So Jacob could hear that and Leah could hear it as well there too. Rachel did not have a good relationship with her sister. Naphtali grew up in a wrestling family, if I could say that in that way there. He grew up in a wrestling family. When we think of wrestling, we think about a very physical sport that involves holds, grappling, physical contact, holding techniques with the goal of either pinning your opponent winning by points or by submission. Now, you men who have wrestled in high school or maybe even in college, you know that there's an incredible amount of endurance required in wrestling. A wrestling match does not involve a lot of time. I don't remember, Brother AJ, was it two minutes or one minute they have for high school? I don't know what it is right now, but I guess it's about two minutes or one minute for that. And, they, and the coaches train you. If it's a good coach, he trains you to do a lot of running, a lot of endurance, because after you put all the you know, stuff on to protect your ears and things, when you get in a match, if you're in a, if you're in a very aggressive, match with a very strong contender. It's all about technique. It's all about endurance. And Lord, 60 seconds feel like 60 minutes when you're done. And some of these cases, these guys have to go two out of, they have to go three rounds with the goal of winning two out of three unless that opponent gets pinned. Have you ever watched high school? By the way, all this stuff on TV, that's not real wrestling. That's just entertainment. Amen? Okay? Now, I'm not going to get in the ring and tell that guy that, but, but I'll just tell you that's just entertainment there, okay? They're making money on you stuff. I'm talking about real wrestling, the stuff these guys do in the Olympics and high school and college. I mean, that's real stuff there. Greco, Greco Roman railing, which is all upper body strength. I mean, that's real stuff there because it's incredible amount of endurance. And uh, wrestling, you know, it, it, they're very short durations, but wrestlers, when they're done, they're exhausted and they're depleted. Now, why don't you write this down? Some of you new Christians. Wrestling is a colorful picture of how God gets a hold of us and how we need to get a hold of God, okay? Wrestling is a very colorful picture of how God needs to get a hold of us and we get a hold of God. And I want you to notice some things here. Genesis 32, go over there with me. Genesis 32, look at verses 24 to 28. The first thing we see tonight is Jacob and the angel of the Lord at Peniel. Jacob and the angel of the Lord. Now, now, I'm going to summarize it, but I think it's good to read this because I want you to get this. Now, I just preached a message on this last year. Somewhere along the way, you're going to hear at least one message a year from somebody because this is a very powerful passage of Scripture that speaks to us. I mean, I can't help when I read this in my devotions that it doesn't really speak to my heart. I mean, it just does. God works all over me about this. Jacob is at a critical point in his life. You go to Genesis 32, verse 24, and it says this, And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the break of the day. Now, you need to understand something here. Jacob did not choose to wrestle with this angel. The angel came to wrestle with him because Jacob was in trouble. Jacob was at the point where God needed him to be. And so verse 25 says, when he saw that he prevailed not against him, that the, the Bible says the angel touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of th joint as he wrestled with him. So here's what's going on. The, Jake, the, the angel is trying to get a hold of Jacob to break him. He was trying to show Jacob who was too full of himself, and the angel of God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, getting a hold of him. But Jacob's a stubborn individual. Jacob is very, very resilient. Jacob is holding on. He doesn't want to get pinned. He doesn't want to lose. Jacob was like that. He didn't want to lose. He always wanted to win. And so the angel recognized that Jacob wasn't going to let go. He's holding on to the angel. He was grappling, but he was holding on. Now, probably just by, just tell you this, as you study this, he's holding on. He's doing probably some illegal things, things you're not supposed to do in wrestling. You're not supposed to hold on to your opponent's clothing or whatever, but he's holding on to this angel, whatever he's doing. And the Bible says the angel, the Lord Jesus Christ, touched the all of a side. By the way, how many understand tonight? God doesn't need to punch us. God just needs to touch us. Amen? Amen. And he touches him and he, and he dislocates the hollow of his thigh. He dislocates his hip. He's dislocated. He's immobilized. He's all of a sudden put in a place we can't walk normal anymore or move around normal. He's feeling this incredible amount of pain. His hip is out of joint. And so notice verse 26. And he said, the angel said, let me go. God, Jesus said, now let me go for the day breaketh. He says, I've disabled you, let me go. Now, he could have just broke the, broke the hole, but he's trying to get Jacob's attention. Because he, want, he was driving Jacob to what we're going to read now in verse 26. And Jacob said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And uh, he, so Jacob's saying, I'm, my hip's out of joint, and I'm hurting pretty bad. 
but I'm not going to let you go. I'm holding on until you bless me. He's saying this, I'm desperate. I'm at a point in my life, I can't go on any further. I'm at a point in my life, he says, I'm about to face Esau in front of me. My father-in-law is behind me. My father-in-law, I don't know if he's going to kill me if I go back. So I can't go back. I feel like I can't go forward. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm at this critical point. I've sent my wives ahead. I've sent the children ahead. I've sent the servants ahead to meet Esau. I'm here with you. He says, listen, I know who you are. I've met you before. I met you over at Bethel. I met you there. I saw you there as the ladder that was ascending to heaven and, and the angels the angel went from earth to heaven and the angels ascending and descending. He said, I remember who you are. He was remembering his conversion experience. You see, Jacob had been backslidden for 20 years. Let me tell you something tonight. If you're backslidden for 20 years and God visited with you, you're going to remember some things from days of old. You're going to remember how sweet salvation was. You're going to remember how it was when you got your sins forgiven. God's going to touch that hard and old crusty heart. And listen, if you've been living without God for 20 minutes or 20 days or 20 months or 20 years, it's time to come home to God. Amen? And this, this man was way, way far from God. And God touched his hollow of his thigh. And I'm going to tell you something tonight. If you're away from God, God has a way of touching you to break you. God has a way of getting your attention. God's going to have to dislocate something. God's going to have to break something. God's going to have to dislocate something and put us in a situation where we'll never forget that that day we met God. And on that particular day, Jacob realized he'd been touched and he realized he'd been touched by the Lord. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Now notice the angel of the Lord. He says, what is thy name? He said, Jacob. Now, Jacob knew his name. The angel knew his name. But he wanted, Jacob to hear, he wanted Jacob to hear his own name. He wanted Jacob to hear his name. And as he thought about it, as he pronounced his name, Yagab, in Hebrew. It meant supplanter, heel holder, cheater, deceiver. And that moment, as he heard his name, he realized for all those adult years what his life was. Yes, he was saved, but he was a carnal believer. He wasn't living for God. He was deceiving people and taking advantage of people, doing things for his own benefit. And now he said, now Jacob was a place where he's broken. He's humble. He's holding on because he knew that there was a power here that he did not have. And there was a power there that he needed. Let me tell you something tonight. We need a power that we don't have for Sunday next week. We need a power we don't have for ongoing Sundays. We need a power we don't have for God to do something great in this church. And so notice here as we look at verse 20, 28. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob. That's great. Amen. Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. Now what does Israel mean? God has prevailed. Not Jacob has prevailed. God has prevailed. That's what Israel means. He said, for as a prince has thou power with God and with men and has prevailed. And so he's disabled him. Now it started out with this angel getting a hold of him by helping to realize that he'd been trying to do things his way, but it wasn't working out because Jacob was too full of himself, too full of his agenda, too full of his pride, too full of his way. God had to disable Jacob in order for him to learn. He needed to learn to hold on to God. Jacob never forgot that experience. Let me tell you something tonight. You're at a crossroads. You're at a crisis. You've got difficulties. You're in a dark spot in your life. You know you're powerless. You know the prayers aren't being answered. You know things are not happening. You need a penile experience. You need to go off somewhere where you get alone with God. And God has to come down perhaps in the middle of the night. And he needs to touch you in a certain way. You've got to pay the price. You've got to decide you're going to spend the time in prayer and pay the price for God to get a hold of you and touch your life and change you. You've got to get to place and saying, God, show me what's too strong about me that you've got to disable. Show me what's too strong about me that you've got to touch and you've got to change. And listen, whatever, whatever influences you've had in your life that led you to where you're at, it might be God needs us to let go of those influences. That the only influence that touches our life is the influence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I like what Spurgeon or D.L. Moody said. Moody said this, the Christian on his knees sees more than the philosopher on his tiptoes. God never sends any way, anyone away empty except those full of themselves. That's a great thought right there. Now we go to Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. Are you there? Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. Notice the commentary that Hosea gives about this, this wrestling match. And he took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel. And notice he prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. Listen, he found him at Bethel. He found him there at Penal. God was working him. Listen, the, this wrestling, we think of Naphtali. That was Naphtali's father that, that dealt with that. That was Naphtali's dad that went through that. We see here how Jacob and the angel Lord. But notice the second thing. Wrestling is a colorful picture of 
of intense prayer. Wrestling is a colorful picture of intense prayer. I want you to turn with me to Colossians 4.12, please. Intense prayer is when we wrestle with God and against the devil for people. It's when we have to get a hold of God. That's when there's a significant change in your praying, a significant change in your time with God. And the Bible tells us about a man whose name was Epaphras. He was a pastor. In fact, he was the pastor of the church at Colossae. As Paul is writing Colossians chapter 4, Epaphras is there with Paul in jail. He came to visit Paul to relieve him. And Paul got, got to see a man's prayer life that changed Paul. And as Paul watched this man pray with him in prison, he he saw something unique that he had to write about. And notice in Colossians 4.12, by the way, Epaphras' name means lovely. He's the picture of a lovely Christian. The Bible says in Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluted you. Notice this phrase, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Say that together with me tonight. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Say that again with me tonight, please. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Now, the Greek word for always laboring fervently is one word. It's the word agonizomai. The English translators had to break it into multiple sets of words to help us understand the strength of that word. It literally means being in agony while you are, re while you are in prayer. Now, when it says laboring fervently, we remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was praying. Great drops of sweat dropped off his head. And, they, 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 and, and the writer Luke pictures it as if they were drops of blood that came off of him. Epaphras was a man who labored fervently in his prayers for the saints that were Colossae. He was wrestling with God. The idea takes us back to Jacob, wrestling with God as he wept and made supplication. Paul listened to Epaphras pray. Paul watched Epaphras pray. He watched his man as he labored in prayer for the people he loved because he was away from his congregation. And more than anything else, as we read about Epaphras, he loved the people at Colossae. But he came to, if I can say this, he came to a ceiling. He wasn't sure what to do because of influences in the church. And as you remember, at that time, there were no books written about what to do about these type of things. And so he went to see the Apostle Paul about the church and also relieved Paul there. There is a picture there, prayer, wrestling with God in our prayers for him. <coughs> now, Paul uses that same phrase again. Write this down. Romans 15.30. Romans 15.30 uses the same phrase there. It's a little bit of a different word, but he talked to the church at Rome to pray with them, to pray for him earnestly in their prayers. And he uses the same idea there, the idea of wrestling with God in our prayers. Now, why do we need to wrestle with God in our prayers? Well, we're, we're trying to get a hold of God like Jacob got a hold of God, but we also realize the devil's fighting us. The devil is against us. The devil's fighting us. So let me give you some things you might want to write down when we're wrestling with God in prayer, what we're wrestling with. Number one, prayer wrestles with sin. If you pray in your life, if your prayer life, your, the sin in your life doesn't bother you, you're not wrestling with God about that sin. And let me start with pride. Amen? It's hardest sin to confess. Hardest sin to deal with. Let me deal with this. Prayer wrestles with sin. Prayer wrestles with self. Prayer wrestles with Satan. Prayer wrestles with our schedules. How many have schedule issues? Amen? Trying to balance your time. Trying to make time with God. Prayer wrestles with struggles. A lot of us are struggling in the room. Family struggles. Emotional struggles. Health struggles. Job struggles. Prayer wrestles with struggles. By the way, prayer wrestles with skepticism. Doubtful hearts. But you know what we need to wrestle for right now? We need to wrestle for souls. Amen? Take your prayer life to a new level. Learn to wrestle with God. Naphtali and it's wrestling. Number two, go to Judges 5.18. We're going to look at chapter 4 and 5 we have time. Judges. You want to write this down as you're, as you're turning there. We see Naphtali and his wrestling. Would you notice number two? We see Naphtali and his risk-taking. I want you to see the prayer of Deborah here. Now, Barak gets some credit here as a man of faith, but I tell you, the real hero here, the real heroine is Deborah. 
And when the men wouldn't stand up, Deborah stood up. They wanted Deborah there because they knew that she had the power of God on her life. And notice Judges 5.18, what you notice, she makes a statement here. She's praising God. She's talking to people. And she's not talking about Naphtali that we read about in Genesis 49.21. This is years later. She's talking about the descendants of Naphtali. And she says in verse 20, uh, let's see, verse 18 here, And Zebulun and Naphtali were people that jeopardized their lives unto the death in the high place of the field. Barak was to recruit some men to go with him. Only two tribes went with him, Naphtali and Zebulun. They raised 10,000 men. Read about in chapter 4. They raised 10,000 men that went. They were greatly outnumbered. But this is how Deborah, Deborah gives the commentary on what happened after they won a decisive victory. Zebulun and Naphtali were people that jeopardized their lives unto the death in the high places of the field. Now, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Bible right there. Now, they jeopardized their lives. Now, the Bible says something about two men in the church of Jerusalem that did something very similar. In Acts 15, 26, you read about two men, Judas and Silas. Silas was chosen by Paul to go with him on the second and third missionary tour. In fact, he became one of, uh, one of the, the men that was right alongside of Paul that just was a great help to Paul. Paul kind of had an idea what kind of partner he needed to have, and Silas was commended by the church to him. Would you notice Acts 15? 1526, describes Judas and Silas, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word hazarded, the word jeopardized or jeopardized means the same thing. These men put their lives on the line. These men took the risk. These men were willing to take the bullet. These men basically put up their lives. They were willing to give up their lives. Look at how Deborah describes it. They were people that jeopardized, jeopardized their lives unto the death in the high places of the field. They were willing to die for the for a right cause. They were willing to, they surrendered all of their hearts. They implies they would give their lives for a right cause. It literally means this, I surrender all. I surrender all. That's what it means. They were risk takers. Now, I look around here because I know about our cultures and things, and I see a lot of people a little bit reticent, a little concerned. Okay, what kind of risk are we going to have to take? Listen, is your life so valuable to you that you wouldn't give your life for Jesus? Do you value your life more than you value honoring Jesus? And these men, it describes as though they were outnumbered, that they were men that hazarded their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. John H. Jowett, who is one of our Baptist forefathers, said this, Ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. And the descendants of Tally were men who'd risked their lives. Now, I want you to consider some things. It talks about they jeopardized their lives in the high places of the field. And I like that. You want to circle that phrase. When I think about the high places of the field, the field is the world. I think about men who go into difficult places. They jeopardize their lives in the high places of the mission field. I think about Nigeria right now, what someone like Yinka Fasinro is doing. I think about our missionaries in Indonesia. I think about some of our missionaries that are down in Mindanao, in the Philippines, in that area where they're, where they're at risk right now. I think of our missionaries right now in China right now and the great risk all of them are facing with the communists, with a pilot program there in Guangzhou, China, giving $1,500 U.S. money to anyone that would turn into missionary, foreigner, pastor or Christian worker to turn them in to the, to, the, to the Chinese government. I think of the great cost that where Sam Thomas and uh, Brother Kumar there in India, the, what they're doing there, and the great cost some of those Indian pastors and workers are suffering for Christ. I mean, it's all over the world. When I think about the high places of the field, I think about those who would give their lives to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in areas of the 1040 window that no one else is willing to go to. David stood up to the giant Goliath, and he said, is there not a cause? He jeopardized his life to fight with Goliath. Three Hebrew young men that were friends of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they stood up to King Nebuchadnezzar and said this in Daniel 3, verses 17 and 18. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Hey, watch this. Check this out. Those three men, because they were writing the tale of Daniel's accomplishment and his interpretation of the dream in Daniel chapter 2, all four of those men got a promotion. How many understand tonight? A promotion in the government of Babylon was a big deal. Amen? It was 
a big deal. I mean, it all of a sudden changed what table you ate at. All of a sudden it changed what went on your table to eat. All of a sudden it changed what you wore. All of a sudden you got on the payroll of the king. That's a good thing, amen? I mean, their lives changed at that moment. I mean, they were in prestigious positions and they could tell people what to do. But listen, these three young men, they recognized that they were just pilgrims going through that period. They had no intention staying long-term in Babylon. They wanted to go back to the holy city. They wanted to get back to Jerusalem. And as soon as God would open that door, they would go. They didn't know they were going to be there 70 years. They were hoping they'd go back sooner. They knew what the prophecy of Daniel said, but they were hoping they'd go back sooner. But these men, they set the promotion, and they just saw like this. Well, you know, God put us here, and if God put us here, we need to represent God in a good way, and we need to stand up for God. Listen, they didn't let the position pervert them, if I can say that. And they didn't let the title corrupt them and taint them. And they didn't let, they didn't let the money sway them a different direction. And they didn't let worldliness get in their way. And they had every reason. Listen, you think you're successful? You think you're promoted? You're somebody? You need to study Daniel 2 and 3 to see how much these men got promoted. They had everything on the line. They risked their careers. They risked their lives. They risked their paycheck. They put everything on the line. And the king put this 90-foot tall image up there, down there in the valley of Dutra. And he put it in such a place, everybody could see it from miles away. I mean, who could not see it? 90-foot tall idol. It was an idol of Nebuchadnezzar, big-headed guy like him. And, the, and, he, and when the dulcimers and the trumpets and the coronets and everything was playing and they played the horns and all the captains and the sheriffs and the deputies, everybody were bowing. Here are these three Hebrew men going like this. I wonder how long this is going to last. We're not going to bow this image. And everybody's going like this. They're kneeling down like this going, what's wrong with these guys? Aren't, don't they know they're going to go in the fiery furnace? Everybody knew what the fiery furnace was. And I'm not talking a barbecue pit, amen. I'm talking a Weber barbecue. I'm talking about a huge furnace made out of brick kiln, okay? I'm talking about stuff where it would fit the size of a man. They all knew that. And the king, the king wasn't altogether there, if you know what I mean. He was given to fits of rage. He was a choleric individual, and he was fit to rage. And he was a man that if he didn't get his way, he would put you in that fiery furnace there. And he threatened everyone, if you don't, you go to that fiery furnace. And the king finds out. He's angry. I mean, he is mad. I mean, he is in a rage. And he says, who do you guys think you are to, let, to not, not bow to my image there? And so they, they, he said, I'm going to give you guys one chance. He said, is it true? Is it true that you didn't bow? He was given them an opportunity to lie. He was given the opportunity to get out so they could keep their positions. And here's what they said in verse 17 and 18. Look at it again. They said, they said, King, now listen, we don't want to be disrespectful, but we're just going to tell you right now, we're not going to bow to an image. And they said, if it be so, our God whom we serve, he's able to deliver us. Now, they had, they had faith. They said, God can do it. God can get us out of here. But they were, but they were, but they were sold out for God. They, didn't, they weren't calling upon God to do what pleased them. They were calling upon God to do what pleased him. They said, but if not, that needs to be in our praying, by the way. But if not, but if not, they said, if not, you can throw us in there. We still will not bow and serve your God. Now, they said previously we're not going to bow. Now, they said they wouldn't bend. And later on, we read they didn't burn. Amen? They didn't burn inside that furnace there. And they just said we're not going to bow to it. Hey, listen. They, these were men that, that just made a decision. They were going to risk their lives for the Lord. Hey, listen to what Paul said in Acts chapter 20. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I received of the Lord Jesus Christ to testify the gospel of the grace of God. You know, it kind of irks me a little bit when I see some guys who have, have very comfortable, they have no troubles in their life, and, and they know their Bibles really well, and they're very articulate, and they quote this verse, says, we want to finish our course with joy. And I, and I think about it all the time. It kind of just kind of gets under my skin a little bit because I think, do you understand what you're saying? Do you understand the context that Paul said this? He said, none of these things move me. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going on for the Lord. I'm going, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to Rome. He said, those Jews might kill me in Jerusalem. But he said, none of those things move me. Neither count on my life dear to myself. Paul was not looking for a promotion. He was just looking to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ there. And he said, if it meant that I have to die, I'm going to die for it. Listen, when you read the story in Acts 20, Acts 21, his friends tried to persuade him not to go. And some would interpret and say he was out of the will of God. I'm going to tell you, you got to keep reading the Bible because he was right in the center of God's will. He was exactly where God wanted to be. And Listen, God gave him an audience with kings and governors and, and all kinds of other people because he did that. An audience that nobody else in that first century had the privilege of doing. He got to preach the gospel to Herod Agrippa. He got to preach the gospel to Festus and Felix. I mean, he got to preach the gospel to centurions. And listen, he was at the point where they were going to tear, tear him in pieces, but he got the opportunity to do that. And he says, neither count on my life dear unto myself. During World War II, a young soldier named David Webster 
of the Easy Company of the 101st Airborne Division had a mother that kept on writing him because she was concerned. And, and I, I don't necessarily think the spirit in which he wrote this probably, I would, would, would encourage you to do this. And I'm definitely, as I read this, I'm not encouraging rebellion of young men against their, their mothers because some of you young men would say, well, see, mom, don't bother. I'm trying to serve the Lord when you need to be doing your homework. Amen. And so this young man, but he's fighting, he's put his life on the line, and he writes his mother and says something like this, Now, Mom, stop worrying about me. I joined the parachutists to fight. I intend to fight. If necessary, I shall die fighting. But don't worry about this, because no war can be won without young men dying. Those things which are precious are saved only by sacrifice. And that was written by a 19-year-old young man. I told the story a couple Wednesday nights ago, for those who weren't here, the story about a man by the name of Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss... It, he was inducted to the army. He did not believe in carrying a gun, which I kind of find very bizarre. But somehow he wanted to represent our country. And those who inducted him saw that. And so they said, okay, then if you won't carry a gun to go to battle, because of whatever those convictions you have, how about we just make you a medic? And you tend to those who are wounded. He said, I can do that. I will do that. I'm willing to do that. And Desmond Doss got sent to to Japan because of the conflict going on in the Pacific. And he went to where it was known as the Battle of Okinawa, which one, was one of the bloodiest, most difficult wars, uh, uh, battles that our, uh, that our soldiers had. And there at the Battle of Okinawa, the, 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 the place where that was a place called Hacksaw Ridge. And there in Hacksaw Ridge, the battle was for that piece of land. And the Americans were taking great casualties. In fact, the Americans were losing there at Hacksaw Ridge because they just weren't positioned. They weren't familiar with the landscape and all that as well as they could have. Americans were falling like flies there on Hacksaw Ridge. Some of those Americans, they're starting to withdraw and go backwards. But Desmond Doss, as a, as a medic, he's watching people that he'd walked with and, and, and spent time with. They're there, and nobody's doing anything about it. In the midst of flying bullets and, and, and carnage and all that, Desmond Doss ran out into the battlefield, and he took one man, and he put him into a kind of a makeshift gurney, and he lowered them down the ridge of Hacksaw Ridge. He lowered them so many, so many feet down so someone could get him. He went back and forth, and he took bullets. He could receive shrapnel. In fact, one, one bullet so shattered his left arm that he never got use of the left arm, and it took years before the U.S. Uh, government did, considered him as being disabled because his arm was all messed up. It was shattered in pieces. They could do nothing about it, but he kept on taking bullets and shrapnel, and by the end of it, after 12 long, enduring hours, 12 hours, he helped lower 75 men to safety down Hacksaw Ridge. Amazingly, Desmond Dawson get killed. They got Desmond Doss out of there, and they put him on a gurney, and they laid him out there for a long period of time, and somebody came to him and said, Desmond, they said, how did you do this? What, what, what in the world? You could have gotten killed, son. I mean, what, 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 why did you do this? And he said, because I prayed this prayer. When the moment I decided to do this, he said, Lord, just one more soul, Lord, just one more soul. Just help me get one more soul, Lord. Just help me get one more soul. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about those men that some presumed dead, but they were wounded. They could be rescued. And 75 men, maybe they were injured and maybe maimed for life, but he res helped rescue 75 men because he thought about one thing. Just one more soul, Lord. Just one more soul. He put his life on the line. When I look at Naphtali, Here's a man that jeopardized his life for, the, for, 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 for a higher mission field. And I'm just saying tonight, we need to be kind of risk takers, if I can say that. We need to take some risk for Jesus. Would you take some risk this week and give out a few more cards? Would you take some risk and make a few more phone calls? Would you take some risks by Friday, knock on a few more doors and invite a few more people? And by the way, we have, just tell you this, we, we've got a lot of helpers for Saturday for the treasure hunt. How about some of you just go knock on a few more doors and get them out Saturday and Sunday? Amen. Go some areas nobody else is going to. Go some areas where people, people need to hear the gospel and need to know about Jesus Christ and, and get him over here. I'm just saying tonight, we look at Naphtali and we see his wrestling. We look at Naphtali, we see his risk taking. Would you notice the third thing tonight? Go back to our chapter in Genesis 49. Are you there? Amen. I, want you to see, I want you to see Naphtali and his report. Naphtali is a hind let loose. Notice the last phrase. It's after the colon. He giveth goodly words. Say that with me tonight. He giveth goodly words. Say it again with me tonight. I, you guys are falling asleep here. Say it with me tonight. He giveth goodly words. What kind of words are you giving out? What comes out of our mouths reveals what's in our heart. Jesus said, Matthew 12, 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. 
He gives goodly words. Number one, there's words of grace. Words of grace. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. You know what he's saying there? There's a lot of different personalities. You need grace to know how to answer those personalities. You know how to answer them. Let me give you some thoughts about words of grace quickly. Let us practice hearing before reacting. Let us practice hearing before reacting. James 1.19. Wherefore, my brethren, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. You couples in marriage counseling, that's one of your studies. You better memorize it when you come in to see me because we haven't covered that for some of you yet. Be swift to hear, slow to speak. James Russell Lowell said this, Blessed are they that have nothing to say and who cannot be persuaded to say it. Amen? <laughs> Number two, let us practice refinement in our speech. Let us practice refinement in our speech. Look at, look at Proverbs 12, 18. There is a speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. Our words need to make people better. It's to be health to their soul. It's to build them up. Christians, some of us come out of rough backgrounds. Get out of the ghetto. Get with God. Amen. Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turneth away wrath. Grievous words stir up anger. This practice refinement. In our speech. Number three, let us practice encouragement in our words. A word fitly spoken is like what? Gold. Like what? The word pictures means a bowl, a silver bowl. Apples that are golden. It was a gift. You'd visit someone golden apples and a very ornate, expensive bowl of silver, made of silver. Word fitly spoken like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Let us practice prevention. Proverbs 21, 23. Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. Publius said, I have often regretted my speech Never my silence. Let us practice Christ-likeness. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Yeah, listen to me tonight. Everybody can put on the right face to people that don't know you. When you get comfortable with somebody, you just kind of a little bit more looser with your words and things, and you just never know. It may be more, it's, it's more of a discouragement than an encouragement. Church on Sundays and Wednesdays needs to be a time of encouragement, not a time where I'm going to get right with you about, I'm going to get even with you about this or whatever. It needs to be a time of encouragement. And as we get prepared for Sunday, we need to get our speech right. Many of us need to take some time to confess sins of speech before God. Amen? It's words of grace. But notice again, it says, he giveth goodly words. Would you notice another thing? There needs to be the word of the gospel. He giveth goodly words. He jeopardized his life on the high places of the field. Words of the gospel. The Lord gave the word. Great is the company of those that publish it. He's given us his word. Here's the company right in here. Amen? It needs to be a great company. It shouldn't be a few. A great company publishing the word, giving it out. Listen, there should be no people more excited about winning souls and getting the gospel than Baptist believers. Nobody ought to be more excited than Baptist believers. Now, I don't know what your evangelism explosion paradigm was or your lifestyle evangelism paradigm was, but we're not going there. We're staying with old-fashioned, biblical, soul winning. Just get some concern and burden like the brother and sister yesterday who didn't really, just all they decided to do is be servants of the Lord and open their home up, which meant they had to clean their home, 
get their home ready, fix a few things, get everything set up. And then when it was all done, they had to put everything away and set it up and clean it up and take care of all that. They did the cooking. They did the preparation. Why did they do it? For Jesus' sake. You know how God rewarded that? God gave 22 visitors that accepted the invitation. They came out of their busy schedule. Some left work. They came, 22 visitors. They came with the authority and the approval of their pastor. They came with that. And they asked me to come to do this. I encouraged them to do that. 22 visitors came. 11 got saved. And the, other, the others who didn't get saved, they're, 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 they're just going to come back. Amen? I say tonight there needs to be the, the word of the gospel. The good news, the gospel is good news from a far country. That's heaven. Amen? I mean, if Jesus didn't die, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what's your news? That's why Paul said, I declare unto you the gospel. I declare unto you the good news. It's good. Listen, the gospel is never bad news. There's always good news. Amen? It's good news, especially for someone who's never heard it before or somebody who's not there. Listen, we've we got to get a place to realize we've got good news. I told this story before. Some of you haven't heard it. Fritz Kreisler was a great violinist of his day. He could make the violin come alive. But Fritz Kreisler, he did one thing. He would, do, he would play in concerts and all the money he would collect, he would give the money away. One day he was walking the streets of a city he was doing, to do a concert in. He was going to play his violin. And he saw this violin. Then he knew everything about violins. He saw this violin. He said, "Why? I know who made that. And he walked into the shop and he asked the man, he said, sir, he said, how, he says, I know that violin, I know all about it. He said, yeah, I know you do, Mr. Chrysler. He said, how much does it cost? He told Mr. Chrysler how much it cost. And Mr. Chrysler said, I don't have that kind of money. Way out of my ballpark. He said, if you'll wait, I've got several concerts lined up. I'll save up everything I can. I want to come back and buy that violin. I, I can put it to good use. He said, well, Mr. Chrysler, I, you do what you can. I'm not going to promise you. I'm going to hold it for you. If I get the right price, I'm going to sell it. Mr. Chrysler went off in that city and then in a couple other cities. And he had these very, very great concerts. And he always drew crowds and received good money. And he had more than enough to go back and buy this violin. So he went back to that place. And he noticed the violin wasn't in the window. It wasn't in the display case. He went inside and asked the owner, he says, oh, hey, I came back for that, for that, that violin to buy it. I've got more than enough money to buy it. He says, Mr. Christ, I don't want to disappoint you, but I had, a, I had a, a, a collector come in, and he offered me a price I couldn't refuse. I sold it to the collector. Mr. Christ was heartbroken. He wanted that violin so badly, and he was about to turn away. And then he said, wait a minute, who was the collector? He told him the name. He said, well, I know that man. I know where he lives. He said, I'll go over to his home, and I'll go talk to him. And Mr. Chrysler made his way to go to that man's home, and he knocked on the door, and a servant came to the door. He said, oh, Mr. Chrysler, what brings you here? He said, I came to see your master. He said, yes, sir, uh, uh, let, me go, let me walk you to the parlor, and you wait over there in the parlor, and the master, I'll let him know you're here, and he'll get ready to come down to see you. And, and the collector got ready up to hear, got the news from the servant. He got ready and went downstairs to meet Mr. Chrysler in the parlor. And Mr. Chrysler, while he was in the parlor, he happened to see that violin that had been purchased, was perched in a very, very beautiful, obvious place where it could not be damaged or hurt. And he looked at it. He didn't want to touch it till the collector came down. And the collector came down to see him. He said, Mr. Chrysler, good to see you here. What brings you here? He said, sir, he said, I just came to see you just to say, hey, I, I noticed that you bought that violin. And I had my eyes on the violin before you bought it. And I came to see if I could buy it from you. And the collector said, no, sir. He said, I'm into collecting these things. And I know how valuable it is to you, but I'm not going to sell it. I can't sell it to you. And Mr. Chrysler tried to cajole him to get him to sell the, 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 the violin. The man would not sell the violin to him. And finally, the man put his foot down and said, Mr. Chrysler, I've told you once, I've told you twice, I've told you three times, I've told you four times, I'm not going to sell the violin. I'm sorry, sir. Mr. Chrysler had his, his shoulders hunched over and he was sad and he turned around, he was about to walk out the door and then he had a thought gripped his mind before he walked out the parlor. He turned around and looked at the man and said, sir, can I just ask you a favor? He said, what's that? Would you let me play something for you on this violin? Would you let me play something that would just encourage your heart? And the man says, sure. He said, are you going to charge me for it? He said, no, sir, I'm not going to charge you for it. He said, would you just let me let you hear how beautiful this violin is? So the man gingerly went up to the perch where he put the violin and the bow, and he brought it down and presented it to Mr. Chrysler. Mr. Chrysler started to tune it up a little bit, and he got his violin under his chin, and he got the bow, and he started to play the violin. Man, he played, he played a piece, and that man knew the piece, but he played it, and the, nobody could play the violin like Fritz Chrysler in his day. He started to play that piece, and he had ways of getting you up and getting you down, and then he started going, that, and the man started just to sit up, and he was just filled with such emotion as he heard Fritz Chrysler play this violin. People in the house, all these servants and attendants, they started coming in because they heard this wonderful, beautiful music being played on the violin, and Fritz Chrysler's playing this music, and people 
people are coming into that parlor, and they're lining up all over there, and you could tell it was almost like a mini concert going on, and Fritz Kreitzer was just into it. He wasn't even paying attention to the people. He's just playing that violin, giving up the beautiful music, and then he started to hit these crescendos upwards, and people got up, and they started to applause, and then he finished the piece, and people were applauding him and all that, and, and Mr. Kreitzer just kind of acted like he was in a, it was kind of in a concert, and he held that, he put down the violin, the bow, and he bowed uh, to them out of respect to them, thanked them for that, and they all sat down. They said, they said oh, that was so wonderful. That's such a wonderful piece. Thank you so much for playing that. Mr. Chrysler put the bow on top of the violin. He was about to hand it back to the, to, to the collector. The collector had tears coming down his eyes. He was so overcome, <laughs> excuse me, by emotion because of what he heard. And he looked at that violin, and Mr. Chrysler said, please, sir, I'm giving this back to you. Don't you want it? And the man with a trembling voice, he said, no, no, I don't deserve that violin. He says, you take it. Take that violin and take it to all the world so all the world can hear it. Take it to all the world so all the world can hear it. Let me tell you tonight, that's why God gave us the gospel. He wants to take the gospel to all the world so the world can hear it. Amen. One last thing, we're done. Let's go back to Genesis 49, verse 21. You see, Naphtali in his wrestling... Naphtali in his risk-taking, Naphtali in his report, which you notice in verse 21, the first part, Naphtali is a hind let loose. He's a deer that has been let loose from a snare or a trap. Would you write this down? We see Naphtali and redemption. Naphtali and redemption. This metaphor describes a deer that was in a trap or snare. A deer, a deer cannot get itself out of a trap or snare as any animal can. It cannot free itself. Someone has to come and mercifully release the snare or trap so it can come loose. Look at it again. He is a, he is a hind that's let loose. He's a deer that's been set free. Redemption is being set free from the bondage of sin. Amen. Redemption is being released from the bondage of slavery to a life that is under the master who loves us and paid a price for us, who takes care of us. He's set free. You're set free from the bondage of sin. You're released from slavery. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer a slave to sin. You belong to Jesus Christ. Amen? Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. That's wonderful. And I said this before probably recently, but I'll say it again. That's why you want a King James Version Bible, because the non-King James Version translations say, and whom we have redemption, and leaves the blood out. Listen, if you leave the blood out, then you're leaving out the transaction cost that was involved to buy our salvation, and whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In the, in the modern day translations, it says we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, thank God it says we have redemption, but through what? What redeemed us? And how did we get forgiveness? Thank God the forgiveness of sins, redemption came through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we're preaching this coming weekend, amen? We're preaching the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So Naphtali is a hind that was let loose. He's set free. Thank God that we've been redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. I'll close with this. A.J. Gordon was one of our famous pastors from days gone by. He was a very articulate preacher. could weave the word of God and explain salvation in such a masterful way. One day he came out of his study and he was out in front of the church sanctuary and he saw a little boy running, running by there. And the little boy had a birdcage in there. It was a rusty messed up old birdcage and these little birds chirping inside of them and the bird the boy was kind of just being very very carefree and careless about this birdcage going like this which was you know the birds were <laughs> the birds were, were, weren't enjoying that and dr gordon came out and he said little boy what are you doing with those birds that birdcage and the little boy said well sir he says you know i'm, I'm just going to play with them for a little while right now and he, he said what are you going to do with those birds he said after you play with them we said sir i was thinking i was, was going to take them home and i'm going to play with them a little bit when i get tired of them i'm going to feed them to an old cat that i have at, at our home and aj gordon he looked at that situation he said son he said um, i want to make a proposition to you he's a little boy proposition what is that and this is back in the turn of the century. He said, I'll give you $2, and that was in all coins. I'll give you $2 for the birds in the cage. Now, that would probably be equivalent to us, maybe $25 to $30, okay? You imagine a little boy with $2 back in that day? I still remember the day. I don't know if you guys remember it. I can remember getting a Coke for 10 cents, amen? I remember, I remember being happy coming home from after school. I can get a bag of chips about this big and a 16-ounce Coke for 25 cents. Now, that was glory days, Amen. 
Not good for your health, but when you're a kid, who cares? Amen, you know? That was a great snack after school, okay? I remember boxes of candy, five cents on those days. Amen, you know? You say, how old were you? I don't know, back in the days of Moses, something like that, like, you know? A.J. Gordon gave the boy two bucks, and the, the boy, man, the boy's not going to say no to that. He's an entrepreneur in the making, amen? I'm not going to say, he said, sir, are you sure you want to buy this birdcage with the birds? He said, yes, sir. He took the $2, gave the birdcage bird, and he says, sir, he shook his head. He says, man, you got, the, you, got the, you got the wrong end of the deal here. He says, I got your $2, and you got the birdcage and the bird. He said, it's okay, son, you enjoy your $2. A.J. Gordon took that birdcage with the birds and went behind the back of the church and he looked at those birds and they were singing away and, and they looked at him and he looked at them and it's almost as if they were kind of thinking, well, you know, are you going to set us free? And their, their melody they were chirping sounded to pick up there. It sounded a little bit more upbeat than when they were with the little boy. And he gingerly opened the cage. He took one bird at a time and let it go free. And he took another bird out and let it go free. Took another bird out and let it go free. Several birds he took out and he let them all go free and he put the birdcage down on the floor. Sunday morning came, he was about to preach the sermon, he thought, I'm, I'm going to bring that birdcage up, tell the church what I did. He took the birdcage, he put it up on his big platform that he preached from, the big podium. He said, you know, this week I had a little boy that came by, and he was in front of the church, had these little, boy, these little birds there, and he was, not gonna, he was just not being a mischievous boy, but he, had no, he really didn't have a good plan for these birds, and I, I offered him $2, and the congregation went, you offered him $2 for that birdcage and the birds? That's a lot of money. You're a preacher on top of that. He said, I offered the boy $2, and he gave me the birdcage and the birds, and I had no intention of hurting those birds. And he said, congregation, I just want you to know, I went to the back of the church, and my whole intention was to set those birds free. I opened the, the little birdcage trap, I opened the door, took one bird at a time, let it go, took another bird out, let it go, let it go. And he says, you know, every one of those birds, as they chirping away, I could almost hear them say this, redeemed, 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 redeemed. Hey, that's what happens when you get saved, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. I'm set free, my sins are covered, my sins are forgiven, I'm redeemed, I'm redeemed, I'm redeemed. Hey, let's not forget tonight, we're like a hind let loose, we've been redeemed. I'm not going back to the chains of sin. I'm not going back to the old marketplace of sin. Thank God this morning, this evening, we have been set free. Amen. Naphtali, a man of good report. You're of good report when you get saved. You get into the family of God. Learn the disciplines of the Christian life, wrestling with God. You learn that Christianity involves serving God. Take some risks. Some of you need to come forward tonight to just say, I'm going to start serving God. Tell me what to do. Christianity then goes from there where you're constantly guarding your testimony, your life. You're going to have a good report. Hey, he giveth goodly words, words of grace, words of the gospel. Thank God. We've been redeemed. Father, tonight we just ask that your spirit would descend upon this church, upon this message, upon what we've heard tonight. Some here tonight might need to get saved before that we, we say good, good night and say amen. I pray they call upon Jesus to save them tonight. Just I'm going to pause here. Everybody's head bowed, eye closed. I would say tonight, Pastor, I know without a shadow of doubt, by the raising your right hand, you, you can say this, I know without a shadow of doubt, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. How many could raise your right hand and say, I know I'm saved and going to heaven. I know I'm saved and going to heaven. God bless you. Now, if you couldn't raise your hand tonight, you need to get saved. You need to be a hind that's let loose. And only Jesus can let you loose. For the rest of us tonight who've been in the Christian faith... Does God have to come down and wrestle with you to break something that's unbroken? Are you willing to go to jeopardize your life on the high fields? I'm just going to ask you today, would you, just, would you take some risk by just taking a few extra minutes this week to help us get the gospel out? Would you be a person of good report? Your speech are words of grace. Your speech is words of the gospel. We get the invitation. The word of God is spoken. The Holy Spirit's present. Would you obey him tonight? When I ask us, when I finish praying, when I ask us to stand, I invite you to come tonight.
the Spirit compels you. If the Spirit's tugging your heart, you better come tonight. And Father, we pray this evening, there's a lot of content we saw about Naphtali that we need to yield to and be obedient to. Would you help us tonight to follow you this evening? May the Spirit of God who's spoken have his way tonight. Father, we need to, we need to consider that tonight there's some things we need to wrestle with you about that for our lives. We've got to be like Jacob says, I won't let you go except you bless me. We've got to be like Epaphras, Lord, who labored fervently in his prayers always for the saints of God, which were at Colossae. And Lord, tonight we need to be people that take some risks. And uh, maybe for some that, Lord, you've been speaking about the mission field. They need to go to the high places of the mission field. They need to take that step out and surrender to God. And Lord, for others tonight, maybe we just need to have words of grace and words of the gospel that we need to, just to get our speech calibrated in your direction. Would you have your way tonight? This covers everything we need this evening. Would you have your way tonight? Please use the invitation to build us up, to make us more like you, to help us confirm our decisions before you tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's stand. If you need to find your way tonight, make your way here. God, God invites you to come tonight. How about it tonight? How about our speech? How about our risk-taking? How about the gospel? How about do you need to get saved tonight? How about it tonight? How about it tonight? You're fighting with God. He's going to wrestle with you, and you're not going to win. He'll have to touch the hollow of a thigh and disable us somewhere. So we realize we need him. We should come tonight. Find your way.